The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, yes, again, I have an extra special guest. His name is Michael Levy. He has a fascinating background in real estate, both from a finance perspective as well as an investing and development perspective. He is currently chief executive officer at Kroll Holdings, the largest builder of apartments in the United States. They've been around for 75 years, and they have well over $30 billion in investments uh, across 21 local markets. If you're interested in everything from apartment buildings, industrial space, warehouses, what's going on in the world of office space, how to invest in retail, Right. You would imagine retail is a disaster, but it turns out certain types of retail is doing really well while other types are lagging. The same is true in office buildings. I think you will find this to be a fascinating conversation. I know I did. And so with no further ado, my conversation with Crow Holdings, Michael Levy. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Michael Levy. He is the CEO of Crow Holdings and oversees all of their business activities. Crow runs about $30 billion in assets, investing in commercial real estate. They have been around for more than 70 years and operate in over 20 local markets in the United States. Previously, Michael was Morgan Stanley's Chief Operating Officer for Investment Management and a member of the firm's Management Committee. He comes to us with a bachelor's from NYU Stern School of Business and a JD from Brooklyn Law School. Michael Levy, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. It's great to be here. It, it sounds like you are very much a New York kid with uh, NYU and Brooklyn on, on that resume. Uh, I am. My uh, grandparents uh, settled from Russia in, into Brooklyn in the uh, 19-teens, and uh, my dad grew up there, and uh, when we were little kids, moved us out to Long Island, and, and uh, I was raised in Port Washington, and I went to NYU. It was the best college I got into, and one thing led to another, and, and I spent most are. of my life here. So, so let's talk a little bit about your professional career. You started in real estate investment banking. Uh, was this mostly M&A deals or refinancing or transactional? What, what was that like? Sure. Um, I came out of law school in 1994. And uh, in 1994, Wall Street was recapitalizing the real estate industry. And so I got dropped into the real estate group because there was a lot of uh, transaction flow. And it was equity offerings at that time, primarily IPOs and secondary offerings. There was some M&A activity that took place, but it was a wave of activity and uh, as a young guy uh, looking for opportunity, there was a new deal a week. And really? so we wow. worked really, really hard. Uh, but you get your chops early on by working mm -hmm. really, really hard. So it was a great time. Was there a prior interest in real estate or did you just kind of stumble into whatever was hot at the moment? Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> I, um, 
when I was going to law school, I went at night and I worked during the day for the lawyers. And uh, most of the lawyers I worked for said, you don't want to do this. You know, you want to work on the business side. Those guys have more fun and they make more money. So uh, I talked my way into a job in investment banking. Uh, I went into training and uh, they placed me where they saw fit and huh. uh, dropped me into the real estate group. And well, well, as a recovering attorney myself, I could tell you those guys were telling you the truth. <laughs> there's, there's less tedium and more fun on the business side because every deal, every transaction, there is a framework that you learn, but each one is specific and unique to those circumstances. Yeah, it was, it was great fun. Um, I, I, I loved and respect the law incredibly, but uh, it turned out to be a great decision. I uh, can't, can't disagree with you. So, so how did you end up at Morgan Stanley for almost two decades? Well, I, I started out at Prudential Securities, and that's mm -hmm. where I worked while I went to law school, and they gave me a chance in the business. Um, I had an opportunity a couple of years in to work for Solomon Brothers. And uh, at the time, you know, I knew that there was a pecking order in investment banking. And sure. Prue was great uh, and great people I worked for, but I knew that Solomon was a step up. And so I took the opportunity with Solomon Brothers. Well, very quickly, Solomon Brothers got gobbled up by Smith Barney. Right. And very quickly, Smith Barney got gobbled up by Citibank. Right. And right. Uh, I remember going into the headquarters and uh, they were selling me checking accounts as I was walking into the office one day. And I said, <laughs> I'm not quite sure this is what I was hoping for. So right. uh, I was lucky enough at the time to have an opportunity to move to Morgan Stanley and I took it. So Solly ends up at Citi. Uh, Prudential is now PGM, which is a giant, giant operation worldwide. Um, and Morgan Stanley is still one of the biggest investment banks in the world. You were at one time chief operating officer of their global investment management division. I'm assuming that is real estate focused? That was not. That was the investment oh, really? management division. Huh. Um, the, the first half of my career at Morgan Stanley was real estate investment banking. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second half of my career... Uh, transitioned into real estate investing, which transitioned into alternatives, which transitioned into investment management more broadly. Hmm. So, so you were at Morgan Stanley, if I'm doing the math in my head right, 2008, throughout yeah. the crisis. Yeah. So I have to assume you be eventually became an expert at restructuring and all the fun that took place after the great financial crisis. Yeah, I, I, I would describe it a little as the in the, in the land of the blind, the, the one-eyed man is, is, is king. I love that expression. It was late 2007, and uh, the markets hadn't yet entirely cracked. Right. Um, and I had an assignment as an investment banker to work for one of the country's largest pension funds who was on the leading edge of bankruptcies and restructurings in the real estate portfolio. And so I had a lot of uh, advisory work. Mm -hmm. And then once, once Morgan Stanley as a firm in the winter of 2008 hit the wall, sure. like many financial institutions, right. real estate was a leading edge of that wall. And so I had a chance to work with the firm on restructuring its real estate holdings and the real estate business. That 2008 experience, how did it impact you and, and what sort of lessons did you take from it going forward? The most formative period of my career, without yeah. a doubt. Um, wow. And I think most people, you learn more from the, the difficulties than you do from the successes. Always. Um, it was a reminder of our inability to see the future, um, for, first point. But within the core business of, of finance and real estate, the first lesson was leverage. You know, it's leverage that'll kill you. Right. And it'll lever it's leverage that will take you down. Um, there were other things that I learned. 
the 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 people I had worked with and the groups I had worked for, both as an advisor as well as Morgan Stanley, sought tremendous growth in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Growth without necessarily all of the guardrails, the systems and the processes, and to to manage that unparalleled growth. And so between high levels of leverage as well as growth for growth sakes, without all of the constraints around that growth, those two things together can result in catastrophic events, which occurred in 2008 and 2009. You know, if you're investing your own capital with no leverage, the worst that happens is the market gets cut in half and it's painful. But if you're using leverage, you get margin calls and you could be pretty easily wiped out as we saw time and again in 08, 09, right? Sure. And beyond. Sure. And that's where it comes to alignment and the people that work. You know, if, if, if they have nothing but upside and they're not participating in the downside, than the use of leverage. And so whether you're an employee of a large firm or you're managing a fund or whatever position that you're in, being fully aligned with investors is a great guardrail with respect to these questions of the use of leverage. Which which leads me to the next obvious question. So how did you end up at Crow Holdings from, was it directly from Morgan Stanley? It was, it was. Again, I was working from real estate into alternatives, into investment management broadly. Um, and my career was going well and I was doing interesting work. But in 2014, I met this really interesting guy named Harlan Crow, mm-hmm. who was the uh, patriarch of the family and, and the, the son of the founder of the company. And he was looking for someone to succeed him to run the business. And I found him to be a fascinating individual and a, and a very kind, benevolent, uh, interesting human being. And we talked off and on for about two years. And then in the summer of 2016, my wife and I went to spend some time with Harlan and his family in the business. Mm -hmm. And we were flying back from Dallas, Texas to New York. And my wife looks at me and she says, you need to go do this. (laughs) And uh, she knew what I knew, which was it it pulled at my heart. Yeah. Uh, You know, when you work at a firm like Morgan Stanley or you work on Wall Street, in any given year, there's always someone knocking on your door. There's always an opportunity and I had always analyzed these opportunities. I, you know, I made this much money, or I had this much authority, or what would this title mean? And this was the first time in my life that none of that mattered. All that mattered was my heart pulled at me and said, I want to work with these people. You want to work? do this work with these folks focusing on this topic? Correct. Huh, that, and, that's, really, that's really interesting. Since then, in the past decade, you become very active within the commercial real estate industry. You're a member of the Real Estate Roundtable. You're part of the Policy Advisory Board at the Fisher Center for Real Estate and Urban Economics at Berkeley, which uh, is not in Texas, it's in California. <laughs> You're on the advisory uh, board at the Institute for Real Estate Operating Companies. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about all of this extracurricular activity, which I'm sure is intimately connected to your day job. Sure. You know, the, the, the real estate industry, is, as large and as vast as it is, like many industries, is kind of small. And these right. various organizations are opportunities both to network. As you get older, there are friends of yours there. It's an opportunity for old homecoming to see people. And it's an opportunity to learn, to compare notes. And sometimes it's an opportunity to give back depending upon the mission or objectives of the institution. But most of the time, it's ability to gather with peers in the in the industry to talk about what's going on. Some of them are, are very confidential forums, off-the-record forums, where people can speak their minds, where you're not going to read about it in the press. And so you learn. As you get older, you find out most of the time that you're not necessarily learning 
new things. You're confirming what you what you either like to believe or what you thought you believed, and and that confirmation is sometimes helpful. That uh, perhaps I'm not crazy with respect to these ideas. Huh. So. Re- really, very interesting. It's funny you say real estate is a small um, community. Someone described New York City as vast and frenetic as it is, as just a series of small industry villages all stacked on top of each other. And you know you know it, most of the people in your business, even if there are thousands of people, you know your peers at your level, uh, I'm not surprised to hear you say that about commercial real estate. It's true in every industry. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Crow Holdings. It looks like a pretty fascinating place. Tell us about that history and the patriarch who... Uh, made such a compelling case that you had to switch jobs. Yeah, well, well, thank you, Barry. In 1948, there was a young man who built a uh, speculative industrial building in Dallas, Texas, and his name was Trammell Crow. And uh, Trammell uh, went on in the 1950s and 60s to become the largest real estate developer in the United States. Wow. And uh, Trammell had a great optimism, great insight, uh, great, great foresight, but he also had a way of doing business. He didn't have the means when he started out to employ people. He partnered with people. Mm-hmm. He had an ability uh, to work with many of the local banks and regional banks to get loans to build real estate. And he partnered with young people all throughout the country and said, look, I'll go into business with you all on a handshake. We'll split the ups 50-50 and I'll help you get started by helping get the financing for these projects. Mm-hmm. And so with that trust and with that love that he had for people, he went on to build partnerships all throughout the United States. Wow. And that way of doing business was different than others. He also took an approach that, and I use the word speculative, meaning he built the building in the hopes that someone would lease it. He didn't build the building with a lease in hand. He built the building and then it got leased. Now, now this might be my post-World War II hindsight bias, but... I would imagine the 40s, 50s, 60s was a great time to be a real estate developer in the United States. It was a great time to be a real estate developer, and there was tremendous growth throughout the United States. There was also another dynamic that the banks at that time would, would lend sometimes more than 100% of the cost to build a building. Well, you got to decorate. You have other things you have to do once the building is up. 110, 120%... That, loan to value, that seems kind of aggressive these days. Well, these days that's not available, but in those <laughs> days that was available. And so- Why the excess? What was the above the cost of construction used there are the, for? There are the soft costs. There's the financing cost along the way. Mm-hmm. And as you said, there's engineering and, and other costs that come in. And so you, you I, don't, I don't know if 120% would have been the norm, but certainly for for discussion purposes, you're borrowing 100% of the cost to build a building, and so you don't need to come out of pocket with any equity. Now, we just talked about leverage a minute ago. Mm-hmm. When times are good and times are growing, right. you know, that works out well. And sure. as you pointed out, in the 1950s and 1960s in America, those were tremendous times for growth and opportunity. Uh, and so the company flourished. in real estate, for sure. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So, so let's talk a little bit about, about the Crow family members. You were the first person outside of the family to become a leader of the firm. What made them decide to not stay with the family that they've done for 70 years? And what sort of challenges does running what's essentially a giant family office create for you? Well, Trammell ran the business until the very late 1980s, and we had a terrible time for real estate in the late late 1980s. And his son, Harlan, took over in the late 1980s. And uh, in 2014, Harlan began to think about his succession and made a decision that he wanted to go outside of the company, and specifically to bring in someone who had more capital markets experience. Mm -hmm. Someone ultimately like me, not me (laughs) in particular, but someone who didn't come up the ropes from the real estate side, who came up the ropes from the capital market side of things to augment the great skills and capabilities in the company. Now, it's not self-evident that on a piece of paper, this New York guy trained on Wall Street, went to Brooklyn Law School, would be a great fit with a Dallas-based family-owned company called Crow Holdings, but it was a great fit, and we share very common values. And and I find uh, Dallas to be a really fun city. Is that where you, you're working out of, where C- you had headquartered? Cor- correct. So we're headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. We have about 21 offices around the country and other cities, but mm-hmm. we are a Dallas-based, Dallas-headquartered Dallas cultured company mm-hmm. at our at our core and at our roots, which means big everything, right? Nothing is done small. Nothing is you know nothing is tentative. What I love about Texas is when they do something, it's big. Texans think big, and Dallasites think big. Yeah, no and- no doubt about that. So so let's get specific about Crow. Focuses on multifamily units, office, industrial. I would imagine multifamily is doing great. Yep. Industrial is doing even better, and office not so much. Correct. Um, we uh, we both have a real estate development company mm-hmm. and a real estate investment management company, and they're two different businesses with what, different. What's people. the split in terms of activity it, and assets? Is it's it, about half. Really, it's about half. So, so half of Crow's work is actually building, developing new assets. The other half is investing in existing assets. Exactly, exactly. And um, But both businesses have a high degree of overlap in terms of their strategy. So as a real estate developer, we have built more apartments in the United States than any other firm. Really? Correct. That's, a, that's an enormous uh, undertaking. And the U.S. is still dramatically underbuilt when it comes to apartments. Yes, it is. Both in cities and suburbia. We have a big problem in America. We don't produce enough housing, particularly for working class people. And uh, it's a great opportunity from a development and investment perspective, but it's getting harder and harder to build. And it's an area we have a lot of expertise in. Mm -hmm. Uh, in And then then you guys were very early into um, industrial facilities, warehouses, logistic sort of facilities in the early days of e-commerce. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, two things. One, 
We still own the first industrial building that Trammell built in 1948. No kidding. And it's on Cole Street in Dallas, Texas. And my youngest son is named Cole, so I, I love coincidence that. Coincidence or? I think it's coincidence. <laughs> um, look, you could see the e-commerce trends coming from a mile away. It started in the mid-90s, but it became very clear a decade ago that this trend was accelerating. Right. You and say that, and yet not everybody piled into warehouses, logistic facilities, etc. Certainly in 2010 and 2011 they did, and today it, it clearly is the most favored uh, mm -hmm. asset class. Um, but nonetheless, when you're looking at secular trends, that secular trend seemed to us to be very clear. And so we amplified our industrial development activities. And today, we're one of the largest developers of industrial real estate in the United States. Right. And and your structure is you're not a REIT. You're, you're more or less a private family office. How, how does that operate? Sure. So You're not um, publicly traded, right? We are not publicly traded. Um, and we have no outside shareholders in the company. It is, mm -hmm. it is owned by the Crow family. Um, our real estate development business engages with investors in three ways. Mm -hmm. We either pursue one-off development projects mm -hmm. in a joint venture with an investor, or we have a programmatic relationship with an institutional investor where we'll develop many properties over time, mm -hmm. or we'll have a commingled fund with a group of investors also developing properties over time. Are, are those one-off for specific types or specific geographies? Because in my head, I imagine... There are endowments that want exposure real estate. There are other large institutions that want real estate exposure. Are they participants in all of Crow or is it one off? It's always a defined strategy. It's huh. always a defined strategy, usually demarcated by geographic objectives or other property size, property configuration objectives. But there is a strategy within industrial. We use the word industrial. That can mean a lot of things or a lot of different things to different people. Um, our real estate investment company uh, invests in real estate across the United States, primarily in commingled funds, mm -hmm. occasionally in joint ventures with investors, but primarily in commingled funds. So, so let's talk about that investment process a little bit. What are you looking at? Is it, you mentioned geography, is it any of the specific sectors? Is it valuation? How, how sure. do you make the decision, this development, building, whatever is a go? And we're going to pass on that one. Sure. Well, stepping back, Barry, we've learned over the years that it's very, very difficult to predict the economic cycles, the capital market cycles, sure. and trying to hang your hat on that as an investment strategy is often hollow. And so we're pursuing secular trends. and there Meaning are decades long. Decades long. And there are several things that to us seem fairly self-evident. One of them I've highlighted, which was e-commerce. And if you believe that e-commerce will continue to gain share, then you know that's a positive for industrial and that's a negative for retail. You're also looking at demographics, the age of people. Mm -hmm. You know things about young people, things about the trailing ends of the millennials or the leading edge of the Gen Z. Mm -hmm. Young people rent, they don't buy. Right. And so we have the largest group of young people in history right. going through, in their mid-20s now, going through the US demographic chain. And so being long the apartment sector or the multifamily sector. And the third main trend that we're looking at is Americans are moving to the Southeast and the Southwest. Right. They're this moving to lower tax, better weather, and just generally where there's a little cheaper standard of living. And, and 
as well as just overall quality of life. Mm-hmm. And this is not just COVID. You know, we've seen the impact of COVID, but long before COVID, it became very clear. People are leaving the Midwest and the Northeast and the West, and they're moving into the Southeast and the Southwest. And so that defines not everything we do, but that drives a lot of our decision-making. Mm-hmm. Within multifamily, so now to take the next layer down, we're pursuing two areas within multifamily. One would be class A, beautiful new properties that professionals are renting um, because they want experiences in life to, to rent and not own, as well as everything from student loans to other costs mm-hmm. are making rentals more attractive to them. But the area we've been particularly focused on is workforce housing. First responders, firefighters, teachers, cops really? are having a very, very difficult time finding places to live. And mm-hmm. so we've been very focused on building new supply. There's a lot of arguments about rent control or about owning older properties and making sure that the rents don't, don't go up through agreements. But the solution is not taking older properties and holding them there. The solution is new supply. And as the largest developer of apartments in the United States over the past 40 years, we view it as both our obligation as well as an opportunity. And hmm. so we've been very focused on workforce housing. So so you, you mentioned as an obligation, there's a quote of yours that sticks out in my mind. You said, I don't sit around with Harlan and talk about profitability and returns. We talk about doing the right thing. Explain what that means in the context of developing rental apartments. Sure. Um, two things. <clears throat> One, at, at the company level, at the Crow Holdings level, in particular because we're not public, we don't have any outside shareholders, we don't run the business according to an earnings objective. Uh, we run the business ac- according to creating opportunity for the people that work here in an aligned way so that they can grow in their careers and they can create opportunity and we'll participate in that opportunity with them. So as it relates to the company and doing the right thing, it's treating the people that work for us the right way so that they love their work and then they'll love their clients and they'll love their opportunity. How many people work for Crow? How many people? It's a little over 500 people who work Mm -hmm. for Crow. And how many of the original family members are still active in the firm? There there are no family members active in the firm. Mm -hmm. So so essentially, Crow is more or less operating like a family office on behalf of I don't know what to call it, the estate, the foundation. On, be, on behalf of the family, mm-hmm. um, it, it, is, it is our ethos. And mm-hmm. the, the moment, look, the moment that your company brings in outside shareholders, the moment that your company becomes public, things change. The whole dynamic changes. You now have a different master. Correct. We don't have that. And <laughs> so we don't have those outside forces driving us with respect to how we behave, what we do, how we act. All right, so let me push back on that. Sure. Because I've worked with a number of family offices. I've worked with a number of billionaires. And what always comes up, there's always some MBA sitting to his left or her left saying, well, what's the internal rate of return for this? What sort of quarterly profits can we expect? What is the return on investment and um, yield that we should see by putting this capital at risk? So I need, and, and I'd like to distinguish, that's at Crow Holdings at the company level. Mm-hmm. Now, almost all, not all, but almost all of the real estate investment activity and the real estate development activity, we are in partnership with institutional investors and individual investors in a fiduciary capacity. So that's going to come up. So on a we are basis. very focused 
on delivering the investment performance at every level in what we do. Mm -hmm. And in that area, we again, we are focused on whatever the return metrics are, whether it's IRR or multiple, and our track record stands for itself over time. And we mm -hmm. have delivered for investors over time, which is why they continue to do business with us. Mm -hmm. But as it rolls up to Crow Holdings, that is not what drives us. Do I report on our financial results? Of course I do. Do I try my best to anticipate what we may <laughs> do in the next year? But And we may talk about this later, but your ability to guess the future with sure. respect to how it all rolls up to the, to the corporate entity. The other thing I learned in my prior life when I was working on Wall Street is that hunt for the elusive earnings this quarter can also drive very short-term behavior right. on behalf of the institution that can have a profound impact on the people that work there and really break the trust between the company and the people that work there. Yeah, no doubt the hunt for alpha can be destructive if it runs amok. And and as we've seen, we talked about 08, 09, it very often does run amok. So so you're hinting at something, but I, I and I don't want to ask you to talk out of school, so to speak, but when you report back to the family and say, here's what we did, here's what next year looks like, what are they telling you your marching orders are? Are they like, go make us more money or we're really concerned about this, what can we do here? I do present, uh, we have an advisory board and uh, uh, Harlan is chairman of the advisory board and Harlan's engaged in the business with me. And so I'm keeping them regularly apprised with respect to the strategy for the business and the financial results for the business. Mm -hmm. the, the primary objective, if, if Harlan sat here today, the primary objective we're solving for is culture. Culture mm -hmm. is inviolate. And that goes back to at Crow Holdings, our culture. And the culture is based upon creating opportunity for the people that work here. Hmm. And if we do that well, then the other elements of our business, our customers being happy with our work, the financial results that follow that will come true. And that's been going on at Crow for 75 years. And that works for us. So. How do you, as an outsider and CEO, maintain and further the culture at the firm? Well, I maintain it by pursuing that, in that I'm not trying to bring my own objective in terms of this specific financial result this year. Mm -hmm. I'm continuing to focus on how do I continue to, one, be thoughtful with respect to strategies. I mentioned these secular trends. Mm -hmm. There's obviously sub-strategies underneath that. So hopefully we're smart. Mm -hmm. And we develop strategies that make sense in light of where the world is heading. The second thing is I work very hard to make sure that the compensation structures with our people are aligned so that if we do well, they do well. And I would, the last thing I would comp, uh, comment on this, we have now lived through the great resignation. Mm -hmm. I talk to my friends at businesses all over America who talk to me about how difficult it is to attract talent. How and, many people, and keep them. Yeah. And keep them. We have not experienced the great resignation. Mm -hmm. It has not happened at our company and our firm. So whether we're doing things right in someone's eyes or wrong in someone's eyes, what I can say is the very talented people who work here have decided amongst the opportunities that are available to them in the marketplace, Crow is the best opportunity for them and their families. So, so it sounds like you are creating or maintaining the sort of culture that works for both the firm and the employees. I am maintaining. I came to Crow and had the privilege that my first year, I didn't have the title of CEO. 
I didn't have anybody reporting to me. I had a chance with Harlan to get to know the organization, to get to know the people, to get to know the culture, to build trust and build relationships and learned and understood what made this venerable institution in real estate Mm -hmm. so successful. What made the alumni network that came out of Crow have such good will and good feelings towards our firm? And it was these elements of culture and the hallmarks of our firm. And so I simply said, don't screw this up. <laughs> so so that first year, did you just shadow Harlan and kind of get a feel for everything that was going on? Well, p- part of it was shadowing. Part of it was independently spending time across the organization. I grew up in real estate finance. Mm-hmm. Our company's a real estate company that came to America through building real estate and then developed over time the capital right. markets and financial expertise. I had never built a building in my life. I had never leased a building in my life. I had never managed a building in my life. And so I spent that first year in the field at our offices talking to the people who do those things and learning so that when the time came the following year that the responsibilities became mine, I had good good judgment and better judgment. How, how steep was that learning curve? That sounds like you're throwing yourself into a related but entirely different field than you were experienced yeah, with. Yeah, it, it was a learning curve. Being mm-hmm. around real estate finance for 25 years beforehand, I had interacted with and financed and spent time with real estate developers. So I didn't have to learn new industry jargon mm-hmm. or lingo or market participants. But sitting, sitting on Wall Street, the perception is that you add value by your financial, I'll use the word engineering, sure. or your financial acumen. The reality is the people who add value are the people who actually build these buildings, who manage these buildings. Huh. Quite interesting. My extra special guest today is Michael Levy. He is the chief executive officer of Crow Holdings, a 75-year-old uh, residential and commercial real estate developer, the largest developer of apartments in the United States. The firm manages over $30 billion in assets across 21 local markets. Previously, he was chief operating officer for investment management at Morgan Stanley. So so let's talk a little bit about commercial real estate investing. When I was looking at your website, there are a whole run of different, for lack of a better word, subsidiaries. There's Crow Holdings Capital, Crow Holdings Office, Trammell Crow Residential, Crow Industrial, Signature Properties. Tell us a little bit about these different divisions and what they all do. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm sorry about the brand confusion. Um, Not at all. The the, the simplest way to understand us is we have a real estate development company called Crow Holdings Development. Mm -hmm. And underneath that, we have sub-brands, Crow Holdings Industrial, Crow Holdings Office, Trammell Crow Residential. And then we have a separate real estate investment company that we call Crow Holdings Capital. And signature properties, how does that fit into that? Those are properties that that we own without uh, investment partners. And those are properties that Trammell Crow back in the day Mm -hmm. or Harlan Crow in more recent years has developed. And the family has held on to these properties for decades in many cases. The crown jewels, so to speak. They're some terrific properties, mm-hmm. um, and they're in primarily, not entirely, uh, Dallas, Texas, which is, as you know, the fastest growing metropolis in the country. So oh, is that true? I did not know that. The, the nominal population coming to Dallas, and I think it's changing during COVID in any given year, but there's somewhere in the neighbor of 110, 120,000 people moving to Dallas each year now. Wow, that's a, it's a big number. Yeah. So we, we saw Miami, we saw 
Tampa, we saw Dallas, we saw Austin. There's been a ton of growth in the South South and Southeast. Um, when does that top out? When does that start to slow down? Well, I think you're 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 at some level you're having now the the, the COVID induced uh, movement out of. California and New York and Chicago is slowing down a bit. I know in New York, some folks from Florida are, are moving back right now. Oh, really? But the mega trends are very clear. Mm-hmm. The mega trend is it's not slowing down. And this has been decades in the making. This has this been decades in, in the right. making. This, this, this goes way back. Yeah. Um, all right. So so let's talk a little bit about some of those signature properties. Sure. Crow HQ and the main campus is the old Parkland campus, which the pictures look like a college campus, it looks astonishing. You, do you actually work there? What What is the old camp, old Parkland campus? Yeah, so o- old Parkland, Parkland Hospital was built in 1913, this beautiful red brick building mm-hmm. that became derelict in the 1960s and 1970s. And in 2005, I believe, Harlan acquired the site, tore down most of the buildings except for the main beautiful hospital mm-hmm. and built 11 new buildings around it and it's now an office campus in, in Dallas, Texas. It's mm-hmm. part museum. The, the theme of the campus is the American experiment, mm-hmm. the foundations of freedom and democracy. And there's uh, tremendous manuscripts and art and, and, and statues exemplifying everything from the starting with the Greeks going all the way through entitlement and, and the founding fathers and, and Abraham Lincoln. And it's a beautiful physical campus. Is this other businesses and organizations or just Crow? Yeah, so we occupy about 15% of the space. Mm-hmm. And, and virtually all of the, the tenancy at the campus are other principal investors, other family offices, foundations, private equity firms, hedge funds. And so... So it's a little financial center right there in the middle of Dallas. Yes, exactly. And, and what is the Dallas Market Center? Tell us a little bit about this property. In the 1950s, this was a building, and, and they will come. Trammell had the view <laughs> that if I build a permanent building, these trade shows that go all throughout the United States, if I can, if I can house them there permanently, retailers will come huh. and visit the, uh, uh, the exhibitors. And so the Dallas Market Center is a five million square foot wow. property that houses for various industries a permanent and temporary exhibitions. And we hold trade shows where literally hundreds of thousands of individuals per year wow. from thousands and thousands of retailers come to Dallas, Texas to intermediate and mingle and spend time and examine and explore new goods for their stores. Uh, what other signature properties really stand out? Because the list is is not short at all. No, um, one of the largest hotels in the United States, not the largest, but one of the largest is the uh, Anatole Hotel in Dallas, Texas. It's mm-hmm. uh, approximately 1,700 rooms and 600,000 square feet of wow. meeting space. And so, you know, and then there's land holdings in Dallas and industrial buildings. And there are other properties in in Brussels, we own one of the Brussels. large. In Brussels, we in own another trade center in Brussels that mm-hmm. Trammell built, I believe, in the 1970s, and we own that today. What it's, other overseas properties do you guys have? That, that's the main overseas property. There are so, a couple other smaller ones, mm-hmm. but uh, the signature properties are, 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 again, properties that Trammell or Harlan developed, and uh, they are both 
there's there's an emotional aspect to some of them, but they're mm-hmm. primarily good financial investments that compound over many years. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So we, we talked earlier about you were early to e-commerce and and logistics and warehousing. I read the other day Amazon said they're looking to get out of millions of square feet of industrial space. Perhaps they might have gotten a little too enthusiastic and overpurchased. Um, how do you see the industrial side of things? Is that just yeah. one company that acquired I don't know, hundreds of buildings and maybe overdid it? What what does that space look like? Yeah, sure. Well, there's no several months ago, Amazon had communicated that they had they were going to slow down their industrial expansion phase and they were going to sublease something in the neighborhood of 30 million square feet. And the markets on those days they announced it were concerned and the stocks pulled back on the industrial right. real estate companies. But the United States has 18 billion square feet of industrial real estate. And even though Amazon has been a major player and one of the largest market participants, its overall market share is very small for the industry writ large. Now, Barry, I did expect when I sat here in January and February and March and we all saw the capital markets cracking, Mm -hmm. I did expect, hmm, I'd imagine the CEOs all over the country are going to start examining their usage of industrial real estate, and maybe leasing is going to soften. I wasn't sure, but you you just had to think that the market would cause that to occur. Well, sitting here as of this morning, leasing velocity in industrial across the United States has been as strong as yeah. it's ever been. Yeah. And there's no softening in demand that we've seen. I know we're all anticipating a recession, and we can talk about all those things. Good, but, good demand for goods has not slowed down at all. Consumer spending is at record highs, and e-commerce continues its penetration. You know, so so let's let's talk about e-commerce and the retail space. My friend Jonathan Miller, who is an appraiser and and a real estate analyst, said. It's not that retail is overbuilt; it's that it's under demolished. I love that line. <laughs> What do you think about uh, about the retail side? Sure. Well, there's retail and there's retail. And what I mean by that, there's mm-hmm. retail that's focused on selling goods, whether it's your malls or your power centers. And mm-hmm. these have for years been under a duress. And that duress is continuing. But there's other retail where the tenancy is food and service. Mm-hmm. And so during COVID, for example, grocery-anchored shopping centers did particularly well. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the tenants adjacent to the shopping center who may sell goods, slowly over time are being disintermediated by the internet. Mm -hmm. And over long periods of time, that tenancy is being reduced or mitigated. But food and service, and so think about in the neighborhoods in which you live in. Sure. You're, you're going to have a little strip center that's going to have a Starbucks on one end, and it's going to have a Subway on the other end, and it's going to have a cupcake store and a Verizon wireless store. Right. SAT tutoring, uh, some Taekwondo store, ballet. It's all services. It's not the usual retail, which kind of makes me look around at the big box stores, the Home Depots, the Targets. The, the lows, the ones where you're not ordering plywood online, you have to physically go and get that. 
So is that how we're going to see this uh, separate? Is that how this? Is well, I think change? it's it's not how we're going to see. That's how it is separating. Mm-hmm. But I would I would layer on another element to the discussion, which is, and then there is the capital markets. There is fund flows, mm-hmm. and institutional investors and individual investors have been very focused on industrial multifamily mm-hmm. and not focused on retail with a big R meaning retail, whether mm-hmm. it's food and service or whether it's goods oriented. And so there, there are opportunities in the food and service retail space because the underlying property fundamentals are strong and the fund flows are diminished, leading to less competition for that asset class. Hmm. So that that's how we look at and I look at retail real estate today. So so people are painting with way too broad a brush. You really have to focus on this group is doing well and has a future and this group maybe not so much. Yeah. I think I think we often paint with very very broad b- brushes, but real estate is and there are broad brushes that make sense, mm-hmm. but ultimately you need to peel the onion back further mm-hmm. and it is a local business and you need to look at markets and submarkets and the corner of, you know, Vine and Maple and you know, look at these property configurations. Sure, but, it makes a ton of sense. So Crow recently announced that they appointed Don Brooks as head of sustainability. Yep. Tell us a little bit about how sustainability affects both development and investing for commercial real estate. Absolutely. Well, first of all, there there is no doubt that investors all around the world are more and more focused on the carbon footprint of their investors. Mm -hmm. And so the starting point of the discussion is an ability to communicate accurately and effectively what in fact is the carbon footprint of your investment activity because they wanna know. Mm -hmm. There are some investors who are specifically focused on, I wanna invest in properties specifically geared towards minimizing their impact. What, where we are as a company today is, first of all, we need to make sure that our investors understand the carbon footprint of the properties that they're investing in or we're developing in. We are also, by our own accord, as well as all of the various local requirements, increasingly as every year goes by, the properties are becoming more efficient in a myriad of ways. I'll give you one example. Mm-hmm. We are building in Frisco, Texas, which is in the Dallas market, a mass timber building. What that means is instead of using an office building, mm-hmm. instead of using steel, there's now technology that allows you to build very tall buildings out of compressed and laminated wood. Mm-hmm. It's a much better carbon footprint. The impact of, of, of trees growing versus the impact of producing steel sure. has a profound impact. And so many companies have told their shareholders and society at large that we're gonna achieve a carbon net neutral impact by such and such date. One of the ways they can impact that is by the real estate that they occupy. And so whether it's communicating how in fact your portfolio is doing, or whether it's pursuing a specific um, building uh, approach to help the investor meet their objectives, those are all areas of sustainability for us. Huh, really quite quite interesting. Um, it's hard to imagine that you could do a, any decent-sized skyscraper with compressed wood instead of steel, but... It's hard to believe, and I, I don't have the data off the top of my head, but city by city, and, and building codes are city by city, but mm-hmm. you can now build properties 10 and 15 stories tall, and in some markets even taller, given the strength and durability of the technology underlying the, the mass timber. Uh, I'm really curious what the composite carbon materials are. When you see the pencil-thin 
you know, super skyscrapers in New York City on, on Central Park South and 57th Street over there that are taller than anything around them and a tiny, you know, base footprint, I think, but for that materials, they could not have done that in, in traditional steel and aluminum. Yeah. It's, it's hard to believe they're not going to topple over. Right? They look yeah. like they're just, they're just going to snap in the breeze, but uh, not apparently it's lighter and stronger than steel. Hard, yeah. hard to argue with that. Let's talk a little bit about how real estate is doing. Obviously, it's done very well over the past decade. Given what's going on with inflation and the Federal Reserve, what are you seeing uh, in the real estate market today? Yeah. Well, the, the, real estate as an asset class is, is generally leveraged. Now, not everybody is leveraging real estate, but generally it's leveraged. Most real estate investors are using some amount of debt to acquire their properties. The, the most core or stable investors might use 25% leverage. The most opportunistic might use 75 or 80% leverage. But simply put, the cost of debt is going up and the attractiveness and availability of debt is going down. Mm -hmm. And those two things are having an impact on overall asset prices and they're having an impact on overall transaction activity, which has been declining. So you guys are a very, very long-time investor. You don't have shareholders barking at you for quarterly results. Does this create an opportunity for you? Well, there's always an opportunity in the marketplace. And Does this create a unique opportunity for a firm like yours? I'm not sure it's a unique opportunity in the marketplace. The marketplace today is still hunting for that bid-ask spread. Mm -hmm. And the marketplace as well, and, and, and Crow as well, is looking for what new opportunities are becoming available. We're all waiting for, anticipating some amount of distress, for example. That hasn't yet really developed in the marketplace. At the margin, if you were in the real estate debt business a year ago and you accepted a certain return or a certain yield, well, today, those returns and yields are better. But guess what? So is every other fixed income instrument mm -hmm. out there. Sure. And so the marketplace for real estate investors has not demonstrably changed. Huh. Uh, on that point, a year ago, this would be a global phenomenon as well as a U.S. phenomenon, the vast majority of investors, when you said, what are your most favorite asset classes, would have said industrial and multifamily. Mm -hmm. What are your least favorite asset classes? They probably would have said something like retail and office. Mm -hmm. If you pose those questions to them today, you would get that same comment. Huh. Office has probably fallen further because of the impact of COVID and the way that we're using office space. And it's really the most interesting area of real estate now with respect to discussion, the uncertainty about how companies will use office real estate into the future. So, so we've already discussed retail in, in great detail. Let's focus a little bit on office. Obviously, remote work, work from home, probably here to stay as much as as uh, Jamie Dimon and others are jumping up and down saying, get back to the office. Um, unless you're a giant multinational corporation, most companies seem to be going some form of hybrid. So A, what does this mean to offices around the country? B, what does it mean especially in urban centers? Yeah. My office is on Bryant Park in Midtown. You know, it's a beautiful day today. When I head back to my office, I'm sure they're gonna. It's gonna be busy in that part of the city. But I would guess Midtown is probably sixty percent of what it was. What What are you seeing, and what are the opportunities? Yeah. Well, look, there is no doubt, and and I'll 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 make a number up to prove a point. Let's say before COVID, the average office worker was in the office four point one days a week. Mm -hmm. I'm making that number up. But that sounds about right. right. But there's no doubt that.
that not only today, but in three years from now, it's not going to be 4.1 days per week. Maybe it's 3.3 days a week. Maybe it's 3.6 days a week. But fundamentally, there's less demand. The second point is we are much more in a world of have and have nots with respect to office space. Really? Meaning office needs to be more attractive for your people to want to go to than working out of their bedroom. And therefore, who wants to work in an eight or nine foot ceiling, fluorescent light, no air, you know, no common space, no collaborative space. And so you have the best office buildings, the nicest office buildings, like your office building here. So just for people who haven't been here, Bloomberg is built around a courtyard. So there's light, north, south, east, west. This all the elevators you have to enter through the sixth floor, which is filled with collaborative meeting spaces on five and four. And all the food, coffee, everything is on six. Like they were way ahead of them, their time when they designed this building. And I'm sure they they also want more people in the office. They're probably running 70, 80%. They want it over 90%. How difficult is that going to be to, to achieve? Well, it's at some level, it'll it'll be difficult. It's difficult for people today. I think hybrid work, I wouldn't mm-hmm. use remote work, but hybrid work is is here to stay. But fundamentally, imagine if this office building was nine foot ceilings, fluorescent lights, no air, whatever statistic- That's what it used to be 15 years ago. I remember that building and I understand why they built this. Sure. And, and last point on this, and then we'll go to the space is, these big urban environments where, where your commute is bad. Mm-hmm. You know, my commute into New York used to be an hour and a half each week, mm-hmm. uh, each day. It's mm-hmm. 15 hours a week. That's if I was still commuting between my home and New York City, there's no way I'd be coming in five days a week. Right. And so fundamentally, I think the urban environments with long commutes are more impacted than the suburban environments. And then on top of that, imagine on, in, in, let's say, Manhattan on 6th Avenue, the old 1960s white brick buildings, right. Right, or older buildings. There's going to be a tremendous cost to retrofit and upgrade these buildings, some of which will make no economic sense. So there is a really fascinating, and I don't want to just keep uh, harping on Bloomberg, but there's there are three articles I sent you uh, this morning that I wanted to go over. One was uh, Wall Street Journal, one was New York Times, and one was Bloomberg. The Bloomberg piece is really fascinating because it's interactive. New York City's empty offices reveal a globally, global property issue and they exactly what you're talking about these older buildings not from the 30s or 40s but from the 70s and 80s that don't have the modern amenities don't have the higher ceilings don't have all this light coming in how do you how do you bring those buildings up to speed well i think it's going to be a very long slow grind and some of them depending upon the zoning i I saw a month or two ago that silverstein properties in downtown manhattan was taking an old office building and converting it to apartments and i think you'll see some of that so so let me interrupt you right there post 9 11 i have a vivid recollection of that whole downtown space around the uh, Merrill Lynch uh, Winter Garden and uh, the towers or where the towers were, an enormous conversion to residential. And now what was once like a semi-office, like mini downtown is almost, I don't know, 80, 90% residential. It's mostly residential. What do we do with something like Hudson Yards that was just built right before the pandemic? Can you really convert that much office space to residential? 
Well, Hudson Yards is a beautiful, modern, attractive. It's right. spect- that's exactly the kind of place people want to to work at, mm-hmm. and ultimately, but is half empty or or worse. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know specifically. Well, New York has taken it on the chin more than most cities as mm-hmm. a result of COVID because of the transportation networks and the mm-hmm. trains, and and so I think New York City is a bit unique across the United States, not entirely, but it will be a very long grind. You talk about downtown Manhattan. That was 22 years ago. Right. Right, 21 years ago. And so this is a matter of decades, the fundamental transition. And so there'll be a lot of pain to be experienced over a very long period of time. As the leases roll over that were in place and you're not able to release the space at similar rents. Or an increase. (laughs) You know, or the amount of capital you're going to need to spend to renovate the property. There will be properties that are handed back to the lenders. There will be new capital sources who come in. Some of them will get redeveloped to apartment buildings. Some of them will get scraped and torn down. And some of them will be um, uh, uh, made nicer and attractive to the office tenant going forward. It will be a combination of all these forces at work. All right. New York Times today. Factory jobs are booming like it's the 1970s. U.S. manufacturing is experiencing a rebound as companies add thousands of workers. That's industrial. What do you see as as new factories going up? That is terrific. Look, there are three forces driving demand for industrial real estate. We talked about e-commerce. The second is this onshoring trend. Hundreds of thousands of jobs are coming back to the United States. That many? It's that huge? that article doesn't highlight, I don't believe, all the data, but there are jobs coming back to the United States, and when those factories are built, there's going to be uh, parts suppliers, and you're going to need to store inventory, and that's a big driver with respect to industrial real estate. And the last driver is the transition from just-in-time inventory right. to just-in-case inventory. So you go from a very fragile system to a much more robust system. Correct. Huh. So. And then the last article that caught my eye, Wall Street Journal. The U.S. is running short of land for housing. Land use restrictions, lack of infrastructure, NIMBY have all made it harder for developers to find sites to build homes and apartments. Without a doubt. It is out of land. Every single year that goes by, it's becoming more and more difficult to build housing for Americans, whether it's the availability of land as we become a denser Mm -hmm. society or whether it's the local NIMBYism and the entitlement process to build new buildings. That's why we have a housing crisis in America. So you and I both grew up in Long Island. I have family in Chicago. I'm there every year for Thanksgiving. And I, as a Long Island, New York kid, was always surprised driving around suburban Chicago where there's a couple of houses here and then there's a small office building here and then there's a big apartment building here. And it seemed like there were none of the land use restrictions that we have in Long Island, now there have been more and more apartment buildings going up, but they're pretty few and far between. How do you change those restrictions to allow greater density? Well, this is the uh, this is the challenge we have. There's no doubt that single-family homeowners and uh, do not want uh, apartment buildings built in their communities all across the United States. And uh, land entitlement and the ability to build is a local issue. The states and the federal government are not driving the decisions with respect to what gets built in 
on Main Street in, in your village. It's your local community. Mm-hmm. And the city council and the city planning people live in those same local communities. And so the system is not developed to deal with providing housing for the working class in America. Now, whether the states are going to be willing to step in, when Governor Newsom in California a few years ago was elected, he had some big plans for the state to come in and to tell the municipalities what to do. That didn't quite happen. <laughs> I'm not aware not of any all. other state I know the city of Minneapolis has put some regulations yeah. in place. You know, there's regulations both in the state of California and in Minneapolis to allow for uh, dwelling units on single family properties. So it's no longer single family zoning. So you mm-hmm. can convert your garage into an apartment, you know, for someone to live there. That's not the answer. That's- the answer is to allow density in transit oriented places where people, where the jobs are, or where people can get to their jobs. But this is a very difficult challenge. And as a large apartment developer, it's very difficult to have any confidence in America today that we're gonna solve this problem. And it's a real challenge for the working class and the lower class in this country. So you and I both uh, grew up on Long Island. You were in Port Washington. I live in Locust Valley. We're both on the northern shore of Long Island. The two towns in between us, one is Seacliff, which used to be a summer community, but right on the water. Across across Hempstead Harbor from them is Glen Cove. And Glen Cove had these wonderful plans to build um, low-income housing on the water, create these high-rise apartment buildings, 25 years of litigation. And eventually what they end up building is this huge run of luxury condos. They go for a million dollars each in Glen Cove, which is not... Brookville or Sands Point or any of the, you know, better known Shishi neighborhoods, it was the only way they were able to get it through. People in Seacliff still screamed for years and it's ruining our view. I'm sorry, but if you want that view, you have to go buy that property and leave it undeveloped. They're allowed to build. And and that's exactly what happened. You're saying this is a door-to-door ground war. There's no easy way to fix this. At, at the present time, clearly the state could step in mm-hmm. and and take control over these decisions, but elected officials want to get reelected. And if you want a surefire way in your local community <laughs> to not get reelected, go and pursue policies that the single family homeowners don't support. So let's talk a little bit about single family homes, which I know you don't build and, and don't necessarily own. Um, all the data I'm looking at is uh, time on the market is longer. Bidding wars have more or less gone away. People getting over ask have been cut in half. Uh, so clearly markdowns are happening on single family homes. Doesn't mean it's going to be like the financial crisis with stuff fell 30, 40%, but not, wouldn't be surprising to see single family homes, especially in the hotter areas, soften a little bit. What does this mean for you when you're looking to do a commercial deal, put up an apartment building? How does residential single-family homes affect multifamily? Well, the the irony of it is those factors which are driving down home sales are helpful with respect to rental properties. Hmm. Because if you're not going to buy a home, you you still need a place to live. Right. And at some point, you're going to want to leave your parents' basement. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you're going to need a place to live and you're going to rent now, you're going to rent an apartment or you're going to rent a home, but these forces are positive with respect to the underlying demand for uh, rental housing in America. In the past five years, we've noticed 
um, household formations have increased, which means more and more people are living together, getting married, which eventually means a house, a baby, or what have you. Um, how much more residential housing does the United States need, especially the denser multifamily? Yep. How many units sure. can we build before we overbuild? Yeah. Well, um, depending upon whose data you're looking at, it's somewhere between two and seven million units of housing that wow. were underhoused in America. I mean, look at the homelessness that's taking place sure. in, our, in our major cities. The solution for that is supply. Mm -hmm. The solution for all of this is supply. And so Americans remember 2005, six, seven, when we had the subprime crisis and all these houses were built and arguably we were overhoused at that point in time, but then we were chronically undersupplied in the decade plus and that deficit has grown year over year over year. And so there's millions of, ha of houses or apartments or housing units that we need to create again for the working class and for the less affluent in America. But it's very difficult. In the same exact places that we need this, it's the most difficult to build it. I'll give you one example. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the numbers are fictitious, but they'll be illustrative. We build a lot in Houston, Texas, which mm -hmm. arguably is one of the easier markets in the United States to build in. Mm -hmm. And we can build an apartment building for, let's say, $150,000 per unit. Mm -hmm. If we go to build that same exact physical building in Southern California, right. that'll cost 450000 yeah. Half of that might be land and labor, but half of that is related to the regulatory fabric requiring us to undertake certain building design and construct to meet the local requirements. Such as, like uh, earthquake Such as capturing or... all the rainwater. You need to capture all of the rainwater in your property and funnel it into a water filtration a system. A cistern type of, right. Well, they do have a massive water shortage. I, I, look, I understand, I'm just saying what are we solving for in America? Are we uh -huh. trying to produce housing for the less affluent in the working class, or are we not? If we are, let's get serious about it. Huh. So what other states are especially easy, like Texas, or difficult, like California, to add additional residential yeah. units? I think the most difficult is the West Coast of the United States, whether mm. it's you know parts of Oregon or Washington or California. Really? These cities, these urban like environments. Like California, you know, but I, I always think of um, like uh, Oregon as sort of like a libertarian wilderness. It, it, first of all, it's not a it's not a rural issue. This is in the dense, mm -hmm. you know, cities. But nonetheless, it goes back to this point of. Yes, we want it for the people who live here, but not in my backyard. Or if, all right, developer, you're going to build that, but we're going to require you to give 50% of the units at this rent. You're going to have to build a park. You're going to have to pay certain fees. And they, they put on you elements that make it unattractive so why from a right. development perspective. Right. And capital, this isn't the real estate developer's point. The real estate developer is responding to the capital markets. Mm -hmm. And investors investing in real estate are seeking a certain return profile. What about the Midwest? I know there's been a little bit of a renaissance in cities like Pittsburgh, um, Cleveland, Milwaukee. They all are, Detroit even, is yep. starting to recover yep. from where it was. How do you put up new units, especially in a place like Detroit that, what, is half the population has left over the past 30 oh, yeah, years? Oh, yeah, I know. It's... Um, well, Farmland is recovering, retaking parts of the city. Look, this issue is most pronounced in the big cities where people want to live. <laughs> and so when you go to some of the smaller cities or the Midwest cities, which aren't experiencing the type of population growth, 
these difficulties are not nearly as much of a challenge. And, and, and so those cities are doing relatively okay. Mm-hmm. Nowhere is perfect. There's homelessness everywhere. There's sure. challenges for young people everywhere. There's challenges for teachers and hospital workers and cops and firefighters all over America. But it's most pronounced in your high cost of living markets, whether it's the New York metro area, whether it's the Southern California area, Northern California, Seattle. Hmm. It's cheaper and easier, all things being equal, to develop in the Southeast and the Southwest. And so the problems are less pronounced, as well as you'll have from a entitlement perspective, more pro-business um, entitlement policies in place that allow for the development of real estate for these needs. Huh, really, really intriguing. My last question before I get to my favorites are, is it safe to say you're pretty optimistic about real estate development in the United States going forward despite the challenges that it faces? I think these fundamental demand trends in industrial real estate are here for the foreseeable future. I think America is underhoused, particularly with respect to the working class and and attainable housing that we need. I think that office buildings, again, going back to the modern, open, light, collaborative space, I think there's a demand for that that will grow in time. And there are other areas of real estate that we're going to continue to need to increase the overall supply in America. And there are other areas of real estate or other markets where we're not going to. And so like all topics, there's a broad brush to paint Mm -hmm. and then there's smaller paint strokes within that canvas. The devil is always in the details, isn't it? Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. All right, let's jump to our favorite questions we ask all of our guests. Okay. Starting with, what kept you entertained during the lockdown? What did you watch or listen to, either on Netflix or Amazon Prime or podcasts or whatever? Well, um, I think like a lot of parents of, uh, of, of older kids, that March, April, May period was just brilliant because every night I sat on the couch with my three kids and we binge watched uh, The West Wing with Martin mm-hmm. Sheen, which was just fabulous to watch that again. And a show called Royal Pains, which was about a doctor out in uh, the east end of Long Island. Huh. And uh, that was really just a terrific family time for us. Huh. Really um, interesting. Tell us a little bit about your early mentors who helped to shape your career. I have always been lucky and blessed through my job to have someone senior to me, wiser to me along the way that would look out for me and I would look out for them. And so for my first job as a legal assistant, there was this great lawyer named Marty Hunger, you know, all the way through most of my career at Morgan Stanley. But something happened at 40 years old. Mm-hmm. I was working at Morgan Stanley and a guy, a terrific guy who's a mentor to mine, went up and quit and walks into my office and says, hey, you know. Uh, Last he, day here. You know, still call me kid, I'm at 40. He said, listen, I just want you to know I'm going over, I'm going to do this. And I was so deflated. And I sat on my desk and realized, okay, maybe you're just old enough now and you're just going to have to figure this all out for yourself. But the truth of the matter is, even today, 
I work with the senior partners at, at my firm are terrific people. I learn so much from them. And I, whether it's Harlan or a couple of the senior guys, I, I consider them mentors as well today. Uh, the guy who quit and, and left you deflated. Yeah. He very much, though, mentored you, showing you there's life outside of a giant organization, and you eventually followed in his footsteps. Absolutely, and he's a terrific guy, and I love him dearly. So let's talk about some of uh, your favorite books, and what are you reading right now? When you pose a question, immediately comes to mind Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. There's Mm -hmm. no book that's ever had such an impact on my life, and I read that when I was a, a young man. In college? I read it in college. I, I, I had to fight my way through that book. Oh. There's a speech in the middle that's like 80 pages long. It just goes on. I think the book is over 1,000 pages. Yeah. It just shaped the way that I thought about huh. the world, and it, was a, and it affected me in very profound ways. Really like no other book. There was another book I read. You, in, by the way, you're not the first person no, who's I used that example. A lot common. of people say that that was a formative experience for them. There was a book I read, you know, I think there's all professionals. We read books on leadership and mm-hmm. management. And in 2005, I read a book called The Radical Leap, which hmm. was a leadership book read, written by this terrific guy named Steve Farber. And The Radical Leap was love, energy, audacity, and proof. Um, and it was just a great, easy read. And it, and it stuck with me. Uh, basically, you know, love in business L-E-A-P, is fundamentally gotcha. the source of of, of being successful, mm-hmm. and that was also by coincidence how Trammell Crow uh, viewed our business and our industry. That love was the most important factor in mm. terms of success. The books I've been reading a more uh, more philosophy and history recently. So I wrote this, read this great book called The Cave and the Light, huh. which is about Plato and Aristotle. Right. There's this terrific thinker named Jordan Peterson who written several books and I'm reading a book called Beyond Order right now. Occasionally I read fiction, um, but not that often. I used to read a ton of fiction and I just never get to it these days. If I'm on vacation, I'll bring a couple of fiction and a couple of nonfiction books and see what what gets the time. Um, What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in real estate, investing, development? What would you tell them? Well, look, I, I think some of the basics, first of all, you know, if you, if you want to be successful in these worlds of investment, broadly speaking, you're going to have to work really hard and you're going to have to make sacrifices with respect to your life. And are you prepared to do that? And, and, and that's the first thing. The second thing with respect to young people looking to go in an industry, my, my first argument to them is go geographically where the epicenter of that industry is. And so if you want to be in fashion, you want to be in New York. If you want to be in music, you're going to want to be in Nashville or New York or in L.A. And so if you want to be in finance or investing, these cities like New York still remain the epicenter of this. And so go where there are lots of people in the industry doing what it is that you want to do. Now, the nice thing about real estate development mm-hmm. and even real estate investing is it's highly fragmented and all you over the United anywhere. States. You can, you can do it anywhere. Hmm. Um, Real, really interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of real estate investing and development today that you <laughs> wish you knew 30 years ago? This one's easy. I remember in training in 1994, sitting in training and listening to uh, Ralph Acampora. Oh, sure. Technical stretch. He's a great guy. And he sat up in front of all of us young, smiling faces and showed us these charts predicting the future. And I hung on his every word. And I could have sworn that Ralph could predict the future. <laughs> and then I went 
and worked in these firms and listened to the brightest people talk about the future, predicting the future with respect to the capital markets, the stock market, the GDP growth. And finally, at some point along the way, I realized that none of these people, irrespective of their models, know anything about the future. And so we sit here today worried about the future. We feel it's a time of tremendous uncertainty with the future. You know what a maximum point of uncertainty was when everybody felt certain? December 2019. Because nobody anticipated that COVID would come. Right. And so the thing I know now that I didn't know then is how do you run your business when you know you don't know? And those of us who spend time trying to think that we know what the future is going to hold with respect to these cyclical activities fundamentally are setting ourselves up to either just be lucky or just wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> really, totally fascinating. Um, really, really interesting. Michael, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Michael Levy. He is Chief Executive Officer of Crow Holdings, a commercial real estate developer and investor. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check any of our previous 400 such discussions we've had over the past eight years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reading list at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Sebastian Escobar is my audio engineer. Paris Wald is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Sean Russo is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.